The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let's go to God's Word, Psalm 33. We're looking at some of the Psalms in these period of weeks. Looking tonight at Psalm 33, a wonderful psalm of praise to God. Let us hear God's Word. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise Him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to Him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully, and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But... The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Father, we pray for you to be at work as we seek you in your word, as we seek to understand it. May your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts and minds and flood our hearts with the truth of who you are and how we are called to respond. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Think of the Christian life as an ascent of a high mountain. Not that eternal life is something we earn No, it's all by grace, through faith, through the redemption that Jesus Christ brought. But as we trust in Christ and know that we're saved by His grace, then we grow in Him, and hopefully we are always increasing in our knowledge of Him and our trust in Him, and in that sense, ascending this mountain 
of the knowledge of God, we might say. It's like a journey up a mountainside. The other year, I drove up Pikes Peak, that famous mountain peak outside Colorado Springs, 14,000-plus foot peak with this well-maintained dirt road going up to the top, and there's a visitor's center at the top. And some of the, the places where you drive along that road are pretty scary because there's no guardrail. There's just a sheer drop at places. And I try to imagine what some of those races they have in vehicles up the top of Pikes Peak or down. I think they have semi-races up and down this road. That's not for me. It was scary enough as it was. But as you drive that road, not only do you get stupendous views of the surrounding Colorado countryside, but you also get glimpses of the peak as you drive. I remember going up there in June, and the peak still had snow on it. And you round certain bends and curves, and you see the peak up ahead. And so it is with the Christian life. As we grow in Christ, we are always growing in knowing Him. In a sense, we're getting new views of God Himself, the goal of knowing God through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Well, Psalm 33 helps us in that journey, as does all of God's Word, as it reveals to us both the incomparable greatness of God and the unfailing love of God, the greatness and the love of God. Scripture repeatedly emphasizes both of these aspects of God's character, His greatness and His love, His sovereignty, and the fact that He is good. I think of that children's prayer that many of us prayed, God is great, God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. Just, again, those twin ideas of both the sovereignty and the love of God. And much of the Christian life is a fight of faith to continue to press on to believe that God loves us in Jesus Christ, that He is for us in Christ, as Romans 8 says, and that even God's greatness and sovereignty is directed on behalf of His people, those who belong to Him, and ultimately all that to the glory of His great name. So let us consider this psalm this evening and consider the greatness of our God as this psalm proclaims it and then seek to apply it in growing deeper in our response to that character of God, that greatness of God, and the love of God as it is revealed. Our first point is God's greatness revealed in creation. I'm going to start at verses 6 through 9, and then we'll look back at verses 1 to 5. Verses 6 through 9, God's greatness revealed in creation. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. God is here briefly compared to various great things in the world. And God is incomparably greater. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of all things. Verse 6 talks about the heavens being made by God and the starry host by the breath of his mouth. You know, when we think of doing something, you might think you you have to use both your hands to do it, or the Bible sometimes talks about the right arm or the right hand. And if I'm going to go out and work in the yard and I have to, uh, you know, clean up the sticks from the wintertime, I use both my arms and 
You know, I might have to call in some kind of mechanical help if I'm doing a big job. It's interesting here that it says that the starry host by the breath of his mouth, the heavens were made by the word of the Lord. It, it doesn't even say it took his arm. It doesn't even say it took his fingers. It just took his breath. And that, that's all that was necessary. So little effort is involved here. The starry host by the breath of his mouth. You think of, I read a recent article about there being something like an estimated 100 million black holes in the universe. And, and we scientists don't even know fully how, how black holes work. They certainly are learning more about them. God created all of this by the breath of his mouth. And then verse 7, God is compared to the waters of the sea. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. The sea is at its deepest parts, approximately six miles deep. You think of the Grand Canyon, about one mile deep. Multiply that times six, and those are some of the deep trenches that are found in the ocean and here it says that God is so great, he gathers the water of the sea into jars. So a six-mile deep part of the ocean is like a water jug to God, and he could store it on a shelf. Isaiah has similar language when Isaiah 40, a chapter similar to Psalm 33, says in verse 12, "...who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand." You know, think of taking water in the hollow of your hand, pouring some water, cup your hand a little bit, and if you pour some water in there, you could probably get a tablespoon or so in there. It wouldn't sustain you for long. And God has measured the waters of the sea in the hollow of his hand. That means the six-mile deep part, you know, fits in his hand. That's how great Isaiah is saying God is. Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens, the idea there is measuring things with your hand. I know that my hand is about nine inches from the end of my thumb to the end of my little finger, so if I don't have any ruler or yardstick and I'm trying to get a measurement, I can measure it off with my nine-inch breadth of my hand. And in the, Isaiah is saying, with the, with the breadth of his hand, God measures the universe, his world. It's just like a couple inches to him. This is the universe that has approximately 100 billion galaxies, each galaxy with approximately 100 billion stars. The Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy, the closest neighbor to us is about four and a half light years away. That's 186,000 miles per second that light goes. So if you multiply that all out, the closest galaxy is just a mere 26 trillion miles. It's just next door. And that's the closest of these 100 billion galaxies, and you just get a conception of the greatness of God. He's the God who calls the starry host by name. He created all these things. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. Isaiah says, the dust of the earth in a basket. He's weighed the mountains on the scales. All these comparisons fall so short speaking of the awesome greatness of God. And so the things we see in na- nature just give us a very dim reflection of the greatness of God. It's, it's not even close. It's not like you say, well, if you doubled the oceans and doubled the universe, then, you know, you're getting too big for God. No, it would still fit in his hand. 
That's how great our God is. And what a fitting command, verse 8 brings. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. So, first of all, we see God's greatness revealed in creation. Secondly, in verses 10 and 11, God's greatness revealed in his sovereignty over the nations. God's sovereignty over the nations. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. These verses speak about purposes and plans and accomplishing what you purpose to do. And nations and rulers and presidents and kings, they all have their great plans. They have their armies, their power, their wealth. And humanly speaking, they may seem and they may be very great, but the psalmist is saying, not compared to God. The Lord foils the plans of nations. They might plan great things. He thwarts them when he desires. Sometimes he allows their plans to come to fruition. But it's clear that the plans of the Lord always come to fruition. Verse 11, the plans of the Lord are firm, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world of his time. But then he died at age 32. What happened with his plans? I'm sure that most of his plans for his life came to naught. Napoleon tried to conquer all of Europe and then eventually died in exile. Hitler had big plans, and he, again, died in a bunker, besieged his kingdom, his nation, falling apart and defeated. Nebuchadnezzar, that great king during Dan- Daniel's time, so exalted and so proud and yet humbled by God, and we read that story about him becoming like an animal almost, becoming losing his mind for a period of seven years and his fingernails growing so long. And then finally God restored his mind and restored him to the throne. The plans of God came about. Pharaoh certainly did not fear the Lord, and he had great plans, but God chose to display his glory even in Pharaoh's hardness of heart. God turned it all around for his plans. And implied in these verses is that God works his good purposes even through the evil and sinful purposes of the nations. Isn't that amazing? That's how incomparably great our God is. He takes wicked and evil and plans that are set against God, and he brings them and turns them around to do his bidding. These evil purposes do not endure, but God's purposes endure through all generations. I think of the example of communist China and communist China closing its doors for 40 years and the fledgling church China China during that time as the Western world watched, wondering, well, what's going on in, the, in China during this time? And with Mao Zedong taking over and communism ruling there for all those decades, and then when finally the doors began to be open and word began to come out that there were probably 50 million or more Christians now. Incredible. God bringing his purposes to pass, even with the evil person purposes of nations and kings. 
there's a book that I read a year ago about the spice wars. Probably not something that you stop to think about very much. But, you know, the reason that Columbus was coming to the what he thought was the spice islands and the spice parts of the world was to find an, a western route here. Not here, but to the spice islands. And, you know, for about 100 years, from the late 1500s to the late 1600s, there were these spice wars going on between the Spaniards and the British and the Dutch. And I read this interesting book called Nathaniel's Nutmeg, which was uh, leading up to this valiant stand that this one British seaman took with a small remnant crew on the island of Run, R-U-N, this island of Run, which is part of Indonesia now, was one of the, the most prolific spice islands. This island was uh, very rich in nutmeg trees. And by the way, at that time, an ounce of nutmeg in England was worth more than an ounce of gold. So you can imagine what it was like to come back from these spice islands with ship laden with nutmeg. It was thought, thought to be medicinally valuable and all these kinds of uses that they had for it. So it was in high demand, and nations would risk anything to get it. And so the English were fighting the Dutch, and were fighting the Sp- Sp- Spaniards, and Nathaniel Cor- Courthope takes this valiant stand on the island of Run, and he's eventually killed. Oh, so I'm ruining the book for you if you read the book. But He does a valiant job, but it's interesting. I say all this because a treaty eventually was agreed to between the English and the Dutch, and a a little-known island was traded. The Dutch traded for the island of Run, this little island in the New World called Manhattan. Isn't that interesting? It was a swap. Who wants the island of Manhattan? Well, people thought it might be worth a little bit at that time, what do we know now of the island of Run? Of course, that's an object and point, isn't it? The Lord is accomplishing his purposes and plans. And I'm not saying he was favoring the English over the Dutch. I'm just saying, who knows what God's purposes are for the world or for nations or for islands? The purposes of God will stand. So God's greatness is revealed in his sovereignty over the nations. And thirdly, God's greatness is revealed in his heart-searching knowledge of every person. Look at verses 12 and following. God's knowledge of the heart-searching, of being able to search every person's heart. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. The horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all his great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Verse after verse piles up this idea that God sees all. He even sees the heart of all, the hearts of all, the innermost motives, the thoughts, the desires of every single person on the earth. It's tax time. At least it's almost April 15th. It won't be long. I'm still working on my taxes, and hopefully they'll be done soon. But think of the IRS, this powerful arm of government. And, uh, you know, it seems like 
with this limitless supply of tax money and power and bureaucracy that the IRS can know everything there is to know. But no, the IRS can't know. A lot of people get away with a lot of things. Marvin Olowski talks about that in an article in World, talks about Peru and how uh, this idea, he talks about that a government can know everything about the economic activity going on. And he's saying a government can't know all that. He says freedom just breaks out. People uh, work around the government bureaucracy and controls, and economic activity takes place. In fact, I've read that the only reason the IRS and the income tax has been so successful over the history of its time in America is because historically Americans have been amazingly honest. So I guess that's why it works in part. But think of the greatness of God's knowledge. It goes way beyond any government and what a government can do. It's saying the Lord knows. He looks down. He formed our hearts. He considers everything that we do. But then there's an emphasis in verse 18 that goes beyond bare knowledge in that sense. It says, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. This goes beyond simply knowing. It's got this sense of loving, of caring. The eyes of the Lord not only are on us, in a sense, to know us through and through, but also those who belong to God through Jesus Christ, we know that the eyes of the Lord are on us for our good. It's like a parent with a child that's watching a small child. You know, we go to the beach sometime with our grandkids, and they're running in the waves, and, you know, they're hesitant to go out far because they might get pulled in by the undertow. But as a parent, you're like an eagle eye. You're watching. They might just be in three inches there, but a big wave might come, and you're ready to grab them if they go down. Your eye is on them as the Lord's eye, in this sense, is watching out for us. And so what, a, what an encouraged truth, encouraging truth, not only that God knows us through and through in terms of our sinfulness, in terms of our motives that are wrong, but also God's eye is on those who belong to him for good, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine, it says. Can you imagine how extreme that would be? We've never, at least I don't think anyone here has ever been in an actual fa- 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 famine. And you read what it must be like when there's not enough food. And you think, think of if all the crops failed and you were in uh, uh, subsistence cu- cu- culture. And where is the food going to come from? How are you going to stay alive? It says that the Lord is so great. He's able to deliver from death and to keep alive in famine. That's the the nature of the eyes of the Lord being upon us. Well, let's seek to apply these truths. We've had a glimpse of the greatness of God. God is incomparably great, and God has set his love on those who trust in him. Three applications of this. The first is this. This knowledge of God should lead us to praise. And the psalm begins on this note. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise him. And it talks about the harp and the string lyre. Play skillfully. Shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. This week, do this little exercise. Think about these three points. God greater than creation, 
God greater than nations, rulers. God knows me through and through. And each one of those categories should lead us to praise. It's fitting that we praise Him. Even this afternoon, I would guess that every Christian on a beautiful spring day like this with 70 degrees out and the sun shining and this spring feeling in the air, I am guessing that not one of you could look out and not say, Lord, praise to your name. You are the God of this creation. You have revealed yourself in creation and supremely in the Word of God and through Christ our Lord. But doesn't creation make you want to lift up your heart to Him in praise? I think that's one of the first marks of someone who comes to Christ in faith. There's a whole new perspective on creation as clearly evidence of the God who made everything. Or take the sovereign plans of God, that He's a ruler over all. And this evening, a lot of you are going to go home and turn on your TVs and see if the health care plan goes through or not. And you're going to be fretting about that. And, you know, I'll be right there fretting with you because, you know, of, of my p- political views of what I think that health care plan is going to do. And uh, I don't think it's going to be a good thing. But are we able to praise God with a sense of resting in His sovereignty? Do you believe the words of this psalm? The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. And I know God is not, you know, in favor of the Democrats or the Republicans, but God is going to accomplish His purpose through both parties, through both the good things that they do and the bad things that, that they do. We need to rest with a sense of praise in the sovereignty of our God. And then make it your point this week to praise God that He knows you through and through. He knows the motives of your heart. He knows the good things that are there. He knows your desire to trust in Christ, to turn from your sin. He knows your weaknesses and your strengths. He knows all about you. He knows the things that are hard for you. He knows the sufferings that you've borne maybe for many years. And His eye is upon you, as the psalm describes it. He is at work on your behalf in Christ. Praise Him for that wonderful truth about God, knowing you through and through, and yet loving you in Christ and promising to keep you to the end. So the first application is to praise the Lord because of who He is. Secondly, this knowledge of God should cause us to fear God. It's interesting how there's this theme that's repeated in this psalm, fear the Lord. In fact, in verse 8 and verse 18, this call to fear the Lord serves as bookends almost around the central part of the psalm, which describes the greatness of God. We have in verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the people of the world revere Him. And then in verse 18 again, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, on those whose hope is in His unfailing love. Jerry Bridges, in his his book on fearing God, says that the primary elements of our relationship to God in terms of our response to the Word of God are these three things, trust, love, and fear. Fear being the most confusing to Christians sometimes, Fear meaning reverential awe, 
adoration, praise. But all three of those ought to be part of Christian life and experience, trusting in the Lord, loving Him with all our heart, mind, and soul, and walking in fear of Him, this kind of right awe of the Lord. And if one of those is missing, there's going to be imbalance in our walk with God. And fear does not mean that cringing dread of condemnation. There's therefore now no condemnations, Roman 8 says, but it's this reverential awe. So, as we gaze at the greatness of God as He's revealed in creation and His sovereignty and His knowledge of all things, we are filled with wonder and awe. And as we look at His holiness and His love, especially displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord, we grow in our desire to please Him, to walk according to His Word, to live in accordance with His will for our lives. That is right Christian growth, to have that wholesome kind of fear and reverence for our God. It's not a contradiction at all. These three elements coexist very well. They balance one another. A a love that's also constrained by a right reverence for God and a trust in Him. In fact, notice in verse 18, parallel phrases. Hebrew poetry often describes something in slightly different words or almost the same words, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him. What does the next phrase say parallel to that? On those whose hope is in His unfailing love. Those don't contradict one another. They go side by side. To fear the Lord is also to be linked with hope and waiting upon Him, trusting in His unfailing love. When Teddy Roosevelt's father died pretty suddenly when Teddy was a sophomore at Harvard, it was a deeply traumatic uh, time for the Roosevelt family and Teddy went back to school then and uh, went back to his studies, but he had deeply loved and admired his father and his journal, his writings at that that time, and for some time to come, are filled with these resolves that he repeatedly resolves to live up to his father's example and to to live in light of his father's love for him. He's just He's just deeply stirred by this example, by this loving father whom he loved to be with. Teddy just loved to be with his father and would do anything to be with him. That's how it impacted him. Of course, that father's love did not have the kind of power that the love of our heavenly father has to actually bring about change in our lives. What an amazing thing it is as we live in this right kind of fear of the Lord Not only is that a right thing, but that is also filled with power as God is in the business of transforming us by the work of Christ so that we more and more can die to sinful self and live to God. So this knowledge of God should cause us to fear Him. But finally, this knowledge of God's love and this knowledge of how great God is should bring us to more fully trust our God. The climax of the psalm is verses 18 to 22. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, on those whose hope is in His unfailing love. And then verse 20, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Notice how many times he's already talked about trusting the Lord. Verse 18, those whose hope is in His unfailing love. Verse 20, we wait in hope for the Lord. 
Verse 21, in him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. Verse 22, may your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Four times in a row, this refrain, our hope is in you, our trust is in you, we wait in you, O Lord. That's the kind of response that should well up within our hearts as we consider the character of our God, His greatness, His love. It's, it's held out here, contrast, to relying on other resources. He's just spoken about in, in verses 16 and 17 on the types of resources we might be tempted to rely on. No king is saved by the size of his army. A king might rely on his army being the bigger army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. Goliath was so filled with pride and assurance because he was the biggest, the greatest, the strongest, yet he fell. Some of you are thinking about Kansas being defeated as the number one March Madness conference seed, right? And, you know, how can they lose? But they were defeated by a lowly number nine seed, northern Iowa, for those of you watching that. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. We tend to trust in, and of course, in our society, maybe it's not a horse, maybe it's a really great SUV, or maybe, militarily, it's a tank. I told my father as he walked in here tonight, I didn't know he was going to be here. I was going to use his World War II experience, so I told him it was already planned before I knew he was going to be here. But I think of horses, and I think of the equivalent militarily as tanks, and uh, my father fought through Europe in the end of World War II and uh, fighting from October of 1944 till the spring of 1945, uh, being in France and then fighting through Holland, Belgium, and then Germany, crossing the Rhine. And most of that time fighting as infantry on foot, but the last few days or week or so, riding with an infantry division and the infantry getting to ride on tanks. And wouldn't you feel a lot better as an infantryman being on a tank? And on March 28th, 65 years ago, so 65 years next week, March 28th, being on the front of that tank column as it advanced, I really wouldn't want to be in the front. And Dad writes on his book about stress of being the front tank. And they got through that day. There were some battles that were fought and some close calls, but they got through that day. And the good thing was after you were the front tank, the next day you got to be the back tank. So wouldn't you feel good about that, being the infantry on the back back tank? So off they went March 29th, 1945. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Well, in some ways, this story bears out the fact that even a tank and even the very back tank is a vain hope for deliverance because you have no guarantees. Your only hope is in the Lord. And what happened that day, as they merrily advanced at the back, there was an a ambush or a, uh, what is it called when they stop the column from going ahead? You know, they were, there were trees across the road and everything. So the column was stopped. The back tank had to find another side road, and suddenly the back tank was the front tank again. And that's, of course, when the um, Panzerfaust, like a mortar, was lobbed, was shot, and hit my father's tank, and he lost part of his leg that day. And uh, so you just don't know. 
A horse is the vain hope of deliverance. Our only hope is in the Lord. This knowledge of God's greatness should wean us away from trusting in armies or our great strength or a horse or a tank or our appearance or our bank account or retirement fund or uh, it should wean a church from trusting in its great building even and in our money or in our education or in our degrees, anything like that. Not that any of those things are wrong in and of themselves, but this psalm is a call to hope in the Lord, to wait upon the Lord, to let the greatness of God so enthrall you that you, you know that your only hope is in Him, not only in terms of this life and for God providing for you to keep you alive, whatever the circumstances might be, or even if He allows you to die, to know that eternally you are in His hands. There is no safer place than to be trusting in our God's unfailing love. That is the message of this psalm. And the gospel is that very thing, is that God who is with us in Christ, God Emmanuel, God who is for us in Christ, Christ, this great and holy God who laid down his life on the cross, has offered us eternal life and eternal security and bliss with him. If you have trusted in God's mercy mercy through Jesus Christ, then you are assured that God is for you and at work on your behalf, whatever happens to you in this life. And you can praise our God, you can fear him, and you can trust and hope and wait in his unfailing love. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, you know how easy it is for us to shift our weight off of you and to begin to trust in lesser things. Help us, O Lord, to have a light touch on the things of this world. We tend to love these things too much. We tend to trust them too much. We tend to fear and reverence earthly things too much instead of reverencing and standing in awe of you alone. You know in each one of our lives where those issues are this week even. Whether we're a a young person in school wrestling with issues of what his peers or her peers think, or whether we're worried about college or getting married, or whether it's a senior citizen wrestling with your provision in that time of life. Lord, you know us through and through, and we know that you're always calling us to more deeply know what it means to walk with you. So help us to do that, to trust in your unfailing love. Through Jesus Christ we pray.